0: Smartcast.
1: You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD
0: Smartcast.
1: Hello and welcome to Tell Me How You Did It. I'm Namrita Zakaria, and I'm here to bring to you my handpicked list of some of India's finest brands. Yes, our best homegrown companies that can compete with the world's best and still win the battle hands down. These companies range from food, fashion, and film to home, art, and design. I'm only too happy to talk to the founders who not only chased their rainbows, they also made India proud. Make sure you tune in at hdsmartcast.com week after week to shake the hands that built our best businesses. Listen to them tell me how they did it. Today's episode is going to be a very tough one for me. I don't know where and how to begin it. I mean, I don't know how one starts a conversation with someone whose legacy goes back 600 years. I'm talking to K.H. Radharaman today, the heir and force behind the history and estate that is the Angadi Stores of Bangalore. Radharaman hails from the centuries-old Padmasalya group of weavers. He studied engineering in Cornell, but as soon as he graduated, he decided he wanted to dip into his family's legacy of weaving Kajivarams, but by modernizing the spectacularly opulent weave into something new and current. He founded the House of Angadi 20 years ago in a bid to innovate crafts agnostic textiles. He went on to launch other labels and build spectacularly beautiful stores in Bangalore. All of them celebrate tradition, yes, but introduce technology to speak to the young and discerning customer. No wonder Deepika Padukone picked Radha Raman's Angadi for her wedding um, in Italy's Lake Como. She got a beautiful Kanji from there. Radha Raman is here to tell us how to live history in a modern context. Welcome to the podcast Radha Raman. I'm so grateful to have you here.
0: Nice to be on your phone.
1: I'm going to take your full name because you have dared me. It is Radha Raman Hari Kothanda Raman. 10 on 10? Yeah.
0: (laughs) That was very brilliant.
1: Let's start, let's start from 600 years ago. Um, the Padmasalya weavers came from uh, Varangal in Andhra Pradesh to thanjavur in Tamil Nadu, am I right? Um, what does your family folklore tell you about the kind of work they did?
0: So my family name is, of course, uh, Angadi, and that's why the house of Angadi came into being, uh, because I took the family name. Uh, so it's obviously, <clears throat> as you mentioned, a very, very um, old, you know, tale of the family having migrated from uh, what was Varangal, uh, uh, you know, in erstwhile Vijayanagar Empire, okay. to what then became our ancestral home, uh, as per recorded history, which is in modern-day Tamil Nadu, in a small village in the Banjo district. Uh, Obviously, migrations of this sort were fairly common in um, ancient and medieval India. Uh, Beaver migrations have happened across uh, different parts of the country. For example, we had beavers coming from Gujarat, from Saurashtra, also settling in different parts of Tamil Nadu uh, and Andhra Pradesh and so on. Um, But... Our recorded family history really started from this first migration, which was 600 years ago. Of course, it was almost more than likely that they were also uh, practicing weaving before that. But this is from when the history, the recorded history that we have or we come to know of uh, really began. Um, I think uh, the Angadi family, uh, of course, became court weavers uh, to uh, various uh, royal families, uh, both in that district and beyond. And that's how we came to uh, get the family name of Angadi because Angadi literally means, um, you know, the shop. And because they were the foremost, um, you know, weavering family and the foremost shopkeepers in that locality, they got that name and i think that is a title that was given to them by the maharaja of that time and that has been the family name ever since
1: this is the maratha king uh, maharaja bhosle am i right
0: that's right
1: yeah i remember i remember saying that um i often feel that people rarely make a career out of their college degree and you are of course the prime example of this from engineering to textile design and of course being the successful entrepreneur that you are but when did the penny drop that that you know here I am I'm sitting on this amazing legacy and I cannot just throw it away I cannot leave it behind
0: so um, as you mentioned I my education had very little to do with what I'm doing today Uh, I think in my case uh, the family legacy was something that I was a little oblivious to growing up as a young man, and I kind of wanted to pursue something entirely different and entirely. How
1: different. is that possible? I mean, the, so, you know, you're surrounded. Well, you you, you well, read
0: it, it. well, you know, you know it when you have um, when you have something. Um, quite so priceless uh, in your lap, sometimes you don't really respect it and value it. And I guess it is also the immaturity of age. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're when you are 18 or 19, you don't particularly care about legacy or history or more other things. So I, anyway, the plan was, uh, like many of my peers, um, uh, to pursue a career, uh, you know, as an engineer and perhaps do something, dramatically different from what I eventually ended up doing, which is pursuing the family legacy. Um, so the story is quite simple in one sense. Um, I uh, ended up returning one, uh, one summer uh, from university uh, at Cornell. And I spent a summer, maybe a month with my grandfather. Uh, and my grandfather is usually a very uh, reticent man. He's not somebody who is... Who speaks much, uh, even to his own grandchildren or to his own children, for that matter. But somehow he took uh, the time to speak to me and to inform me of the family's uh, legacy and the history. And he did it in a very, um, in a in a in a very candid way. Uh, in a way in which he didn't seem to particularly want to recruit me into doing anything, but it was more. Uh, a journey of discovery. Uh, So he basically let me uh, uncover, discover the legacy uh, for myself. And I came uh, to become aware of not just the family story, which I was aware, but I came to become aware of how, you know, this one family hailing from this remote village, uh, you know, in Tanjavur had actually... Modernized, um, you know, so much when it came to hand weaving um, within within a, a span of uh, you know 600 years, and that legacy, that tradition, um, I think, was something which um, really caught my attention in a way in which none of the other professions that I could have taken up did. It was not just about the legacy, by the way. It was also about the social impact. That that had. And I think that was something which was very, very um, fascinating. And it really, really, you know, sort of motivated me uh, to think about uh, this business uh, in a more serious way. Because my grandfather and my father were both what I would like to call social entrepreneurs. Because what they did really empowered artisan communities, not just in our Uh, in our domain, but much beyond that. And I became very aware of the kind of impact that a business can have beyond just its immediate stakeholders. And I think that was a very, very fascinating concept for me.
1: How? Is it just in creating employment? Is it keeping the tradition alive? Is it sustaining villages? What sort of social impact
0: or all of the above? It was in a a variety of different ways. Um, One is, of course, by providing direct employment to many, many families uh, in what is essentially a very uh, labor intensive uh, and what can be actually called a cottage industry in many cases. Uh, But then also much beyond that, because, you know, um, what happens in a community where mm, you have a craft-based business, is that uh, the community tends to revolve around a certain key set of people. And usually, most community-based businesses also develop an approach where I think there is a lot of democratization of wealth, which generally does not get reported much. Uh, And in this instance, the democratization of wealth was very, very real, because... My family had given back to the community in the form of educational institutions, hospitals, contributing to, you know, um, the upkeep of many, many uh, weaving families in their immediate vicinity. And all of that was something that they did not because they had to, but because they really felt and they really believed in this dictum that, we were only custodians or we were only trustees of society's wealth. So I found that as a very, very strong message. Uh, And I think that idea of social entrepreneurship was really something that sold, uh, you know, uh, the idea of joining this business uh, for me uh, more than anything else, because I was not very attuned with, um, say, the, uh, aesthetic aspects of the business at that point in time that happened much later, of course, but um, the immediate selling point for me was the kind of impact that they had over and above what direct employment they provided. Also, I think that the other very, very strong message that I could take from my father and you know what he did uh, was the fact that you can take something which is very traditional and modernize it and infuse it with your own ideas. And that gives it life beyond, you know, uh, what it otherwise would have had. So I think that idea, that concept was also something which kind of became ingrained in my, uh, you know, consciousness. And I think that's probably, these are probably two of the reasons why I became very inspired uh, to follow in the footsteps of my uh, forefathers.
1: It's interesting uh, to hear this from you because, uh, you know, of course, all fashion designers, you know, are social entrepreneurs. But you know, it's you cannot talk of fashion in India today without talking of craft because you know we seem to have brought it into the mainstream in so many delicious ways. But you cannot talk of craft without talking of poverty, right? The the weaver equals the farmer equals the poorest of um worst of our social structures
0: um i agree with you and at the same time i do feel that um we have made much progress um in the last uh, specifically in the last i would say 20 years but even before that i think there were a lot of good examples um yeah. which you know quite frankly don't get talked about as much they don't get as much credit as they they should Because I do feel that the whole cooperative movement that came into being in India, post-independence, was a significant contributor to the craft legacy that we currently have in this country today. Let's not forget the work that was done by some great people like Kamla Devi Chhattopadhyay, like Kapul Jai. Yes, yes. I think that there has been a lot of work which has gone into this sector. And I think that there is scope for a lot more. I think that um, we also tend to um, not quite understand what really our problems are. And what really needs to be done is sort of, you know, really understand what the future direction for this sector should be. Because I think such a unique um, legacy that we have in this country, that we are quite like my, what I was when I was 18 or 19, quite uh, unaware of the embarrassment of riches that we have at our disposal. And I think that that is the first thing that everybody was a stakeholder. And even the public at large needs to become uh, more aware of, uh, which is why I always have made this argument that um, you know our textiles are part of our national heritage, Uh, as much as our uh, great monuments, our works of art and literature and various other aspects of our culture are. And I think that that simple acknowledgement can be very, very empowering as an idea. Uh, And to my mind, I think that uh, when you talk about the craft sector, as we said, you cannot talk about it without the artisans. The artisans are obviously... Uh, very, very important stakeholders uh, in this whole equation. But I think the most important um, other part of that equation is the consumer. And I think we tended to frame this sort of equation uh, from a very specific point of view without really thinking about what the consumer engagement needs to be. To my mind, I think the greater the consumer awareness the more likely the artisan and the craft sector is to prosper so I think the mission really if there were to be one for all stakeholders today is to keep increasing consumer awareness and I think totally. that that is in fact the best way in my opinion yeah. to um, you know enable our artisans and all other stakeholders to sort of keep this uh, tradition uh, alive, and not only alive, make it economically very viable and sustainable. Because what we have is something which is so unique to our country. Um, We are by far and away the world's largest uh, hand loom producer. We are by far and away the world's uh, most diverse producers of uh, various uh, textiles and textile-related crafts. So I think that what we have is truly, truly special and unique uh, to our country. And it is something of a national treasure, if you ask me.
1: You're absolutely right. I couldn't couldn't concur anymore. Um, And I also think Kamla Devi, Chattopate, Pupul Jayakar, they were the first conversation starters about the heritage uh, and the legacy of of crafts and how um, how to build a nation with it. And I also want to talk about your father, R.K. Raman, someone you refer to so often in conversations between you and me. And he's obviously a very tall figure in your life. But he's also such a tall figure for us, you know, nationally, mm-hmm. because he worked so closely with Kupul Jaikar. He dressed in Beera Gandhi. Gandhi. Um, and he worked with a whole host of people who sort of built this idea of India, right? Who built, you know, they were the first nation builders, so to speak.
0: I agree with you. And I could also say that, I mean, without, you know, with the benefit of my perspective today, it's easy to be biased. But I would say that my father was one of those, um, you know, rare people who tended to believe that his work did all the talking and he very seldom really spoke about his uh, own achievements and his, uh, you know, work I actually learned a lot about his work uh, from other people who were associated with him because he was very, very shy about putting out that information in a very direct way. And I think that's something which is something of a quality which I sort of inherited. Uh, But but at the same time, you know, we live in an age of information and um, there is obviously a lot of information that is generally spoken about. But what very few people realize is that he was a man who was so far ahead of his time uh, because everything that he did, I really think back and I wonder how he was able to accomplish those things in the era in which he did it. I mean, look, setting up, I think, India's first modern integrated handloom facility in the late 50s and early 60s in a remote village where there was no electricity, no roads, no communication, was something which I can't even imagine doing even today because it yeah. is something of a, uh, It requires a sort of um, pioneering spirit, uh, this this ability to sort of defy the odds, which I think he had in plenty. Some of which and also, I, I
1: and vision, vision as well, right? Absolutely. And he was also part of setting up the All India Handicrafts Board. Am I right? Absolutely. Is that the right one?
0: Okay. He was one of the founding members okay. with uh, uh, purple Jayakar. And in fact, he had many firsts. He was, I think, uh, probably, uh, you know, one of the founding members of many uh, such apex bodies. Uh not just uh, the All India Handicrafts Board, mm-hmm. he was in. He was, in fact, I think, instrumental with the Weaver Service Centres. He was instrumental with the Central Silk uh, Technical Research Institute in uh, Karnataka, in Bangalore. Uh, he was instrumental in working with uh, many of the Export Promotion Councils because he was also a pioneering exporter of his yeah. time. Yes. So I think uh, he was involved in uh, many such activities simultaneously. In fact, a story that um, uh, that was shared with me by one of his peers was that the Weaver Service Center, the first branch of the Weaver Service Center uh, in Chennai, uh, what is now Chennai, back then Madras, was actually uh, set up in uh, one of our uh, offices without rent, because uh, he, felt that, he felt that, because the government at that time was on a shoestring budget, believe it or not.
1: I love this story.
0: So it, 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 it started off there, and then, of course, they moved to their own premises a few years later. So, look, I think back then, um, the partnership, the public-private partnership was very, very different. And I think you see that in much of the work that they did. They did yeah. a lot of things pro bono. And they did a lot of things, um, almost, there was a lot of trust, I believe, back then between government and private enterprise. And there was a common objective because, you know, I think times were different and people really felt because of, you know, the legacy of the freedom movement. And I think the way things were back then, I think there was a genuine enthusiasm. Uh, to build institutions. And I think it was really in keeping with the times uh, that um, there were these, you know, small band of entrepreneurs. Remember, there were not too many of them either. Uh, Relatively a small band of entrepreneurs who kind of uh, worked hand in glove with uh, various individuals and the government uh, bodies to sort of really give craft uh, the Philip. In fact, There are very many interesting stories about how the Central Silk Board or the Central Silk Technical Research Institute, which was originally headquartered in Bombay, got relocated to Karnataka, Bangalore, the city where I am talking to you from, and how my father was quite instrumental in doing so. But I will not share that story right now. That's a story for later.
1: That's not for being recorded, you mean? (laughs) <laughs>
0: uh, yes
1: it's it's for conversations over filter coffee private filter Absolutely. <laughs> when you talk about marrying technology with craft how do you mean it i mean we've seen your innovations with marrying padi with kanji varam marrying linen with kanji varam i've seen that beautiful Karwa Jaujare to do um, the Benarsi Jaujare. Uh, so is it just experiments in textile or is it also an overhaul in the back end offices? So I think
0: my basic philosophy with Advaya has been um, that we need to keep traditions alive by also contemporizing uh, you know, the design language. And um, innovation, to me, is a key differentiator. I think it's one of the ways in which we differentiate our products and our offerings uh, from those of other labels. Uh, Of course, innovation in hand-weaving, particularly, uh, is a very, very time-consuming process because some of the things that we uh, attempt, um, it takes many years to actually bring to life. And I mean that... It takes years, yes. Because, for instance, with the uh, linen kanjivaram, the idea struck me uh, two years before I could actually make a prototype. Because when it comes to hand weaving in India, the practices have been, um, you know, always been in a certain way and they are really legacy sort of techniques. So you tend to come across many limitations in the way yeah. Uh, and weaving is practiced because it's like it's like saying that you suddenly have to change the way you write or the way you you cook uh, and I'm
1: sure there's resistance from the weavers as well right because they only want to do
0: absolutely one thing. because yeah. I think um, I think most of the time uh, when it comes to uh, weaving what we tend to um, ignore is the fact that while The artisans, uh, you know, involvement in the weaving process um, is kind of the last mile, so to speak, because a lot of the design processes we, you know, uh, take care of at the studio. But at the end of the day, the artisans' cooperation is most important in being able to translate an idea into reality. So I think that, that resistance is something which is... Quite um, uh, natural in many cases because they tend to view any innovation with a certain amount of skepticism because they are not sure what the outcomes would be. Uh, So, a lot of times, um, uh, as a house, uh, we get involved in the technical process, uh, you know, uh, all the way from setting up of the uh, loom. And really working on the manufacturing process itself and altering that process uh, as much as the design part of it, because I think that um, if you want to really create something which is innovative, we need to be able to reinvent the manufacturing process. Without that, in handloom, there are too many limitations as it currently operates. So. With the linen conjurerum and the kadi and all of these other innovations that you talk about, the idea, you know, was probably germinated in my mind a few years before it actually became reality. And sometimes, uh, like I explained, to the process of uh, uh, design for me uh, is just a figment of my imagination. Right? I would have visualized a textile in my mind almost like a thought experiment, really. And then... I work with my team of both technical designers and uh, creative uh, designers and artists to bring that idea to life. Um, And then that's a journey which very often takes, uh, you know, many months and many years of work.
1: How did the Deepika Parukon wedding sari come about? And what an amazing milestone that is. But, you know, I also find it ironic because when I visited your store, um, you know, recently, and I took some pictures and videos and my Instagram went insane. I had a friend tell me, like, you know, we've, I come to the store with an empty suitcase. I had another friend tell me, I came with my mom and I bought 15 saris and your saris are, cost a pretty packet, you know. Um, so even before, even before they because beautifully that burnt red sari, you've enjoyed this sort of cult status.
0: Um, I don't know if I've enjoyed the cult status because (laughs) I generally don't like to put myself uh, as, um, you know, the face of the brand as much as, um, you know, the products themselves uh, speak for the brand. Uh, Like I said, my, um, I think my work has always been all about, um, you know, positioning uh, the product in a certain light. and.
1: But is this is this immense popularity also like has it? I mean, you haven't bothered bothered with e-commerce at all. Like every every store, every you know, uh, fashion company has just about managed to remain afloat thanks to the limited e-commerce that uh, business that they've been able to generate. But you've completely you've not yet launched it, right?
0: So we've. Um... We've actually managed to do fairly well with the brick-and-mortar format the way it is because, as you said, we have a very loyal customer base which has remained, um, you know, very, very appreciative of what we've tried to offer them. I think the key has been for us on two levels. One is the experience that we offer our clientele. And, you know, obviously, when you visit any of our stores, you do realize that it's an experience. And the second part is also... The product really deserves to be seen and felt up close and tried on. I think that the audience that we speak to tends to appreciate the product uh, in that way. Uh, I'm not averse to e-commerce. I'm quite uh, alive to the fact that that is the direction that we have to take for at least some of our brands. But specifically for Advaya, I have stayed away from e-commerce because there is also the attendant problem of, um, you know, intellectual property and how we would preserve the integrity of intellectual property if everything becomes online. You know, today we still enjoy some degree of, uh, there is some degree of uh, secrecy maintained when it comes to our intellectual property because we control uh, how we sort of present our products and whom we present our products in our office. So,
1: so Deepika's sari was at there, am I right? Absolutely. From your specialty, both, you know, actually, family alone.
0: Both the saris that she wore, the one at Como and the one subsequently for her. Oh. Reception.
1: So the Como was the Ganda Verunda, the, the burnt red sari. Right? Do you still get orders for it?
0: Absolutely. We... <laughs> we are we are booked uh you know we've been very fortunate that most of uh, the Advaya uh, designs have been booked in advance for now i think uh, a few years so how, how many
1: do you sell a month
0: so my production capacity is quite limited uh per design we generally make not more than uh, two pieces a month so
1: okay
0: generally a very very limited edition product and uh, I would obviously uh, like to keep it that way uh, for some time to come and that really preserves the exclusivity of the of the product itself.
1: That's wonderful because it takes time to also make the sari, right I'm sure it takes anywhere between a few weeks to a couple of months to make one sari, right? typically takes a month
0: um, okay. though you know it depends on the complexity of the design and yeah. uh, you know Some designs take longer uh, given, uh, you know, the nature of hand weaving itself. It is a laborious process. And one of the practices that we also have remained true to from the beginning is not really mass producing designs uh, because, you know, it tends to become uh, very, very important for us to maintain the exclusivity of the product by not really overproducing any design. So we've tended to Actually, do a lot more in terms of design development and have fewer pieces of the same kind uh, being made. And that I think has been one of the reasons why Advaya has remained true to its uh, original meaning. Advaya really means unique. Unique. I think that keeps that, that, that is something that we have uh, followed in letter and spirit.
1: So, from being the Sari giant, you've gone on to Alamelu which you launched last year, which is a terrific line of ready-to-wear, very international pieces, beautiful trenches, structured jackets. Um, The new line has, um, you know, art-inspired dresses. Why did you want to get into ready-to-wear?
0: You know, I think for me, um, as a textile designer, uh, my forte is really being able to work on design from the point of origin. Basically, even before a single yarn is in place. So the direction that I can take, uh, there are many directions my work can uh, can take. So from working on saris to, um, you know, a very contemporary label like Alamilu, which is really meant for, you know, a global audience as much as it is meant for the Indian woman. Everything kind of originates from the strength that we have uh, in our studio as you know, textile designers. And I think for me, one of the biggest um, ideas behind Alamelu is this need to sort of contemporize Indian crafts for a global audience. And that was something which I was toying with for many years. Uh, people sometimes don't realize that my career as a designer actually began working for the international markets.
1: With, uh, with Ralph Lauren and LBMH, right?
0: And many others. Uh, so, my work actually began uh, with my textile studio uh, working for uh, you know textiles and fabrics, uh, which were then exported to many design houses around the world and I think that that is one of the ideas that I sort of uh, always had at the back of my mind. but then the pandemic really accelerated um, you know this need to get these ideas out into the market uh, very quickly because if you have somebody like me sitting at home for uh, two months, uh, eventually they, something has to give. So I think it <laughs> really restlessness that really accelerated, um, you know, that idea and helped me uh, articulate it in the form of uh, this brand, Alamelu, which we launched immediately after the lockdown last year.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I love it when you talk about culture not being a thing of the past, but constantly evolving and being something that, that we do and we live and we wear and we breathe every day. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about culture as an as an influence for you, as an inspiration for you? For example, even architecture, I mean, your Angadi Heritage Store, which the legendary Brinda Somaya has you know, I think she's restored the facade. And um Abhana Lama has done the interiors where she's spoken about, I mean she's she's referred to a confluence where which has like the Italian Dravitino, you know, marbles, and then you have these Dravidian crafts like the chettinad pillow and all that lovely woodwork and you know the, the canopies also of the chettinad homes. Um so of course architecture is an inspiration music is an inspiration, but this sort of, you know, interdisciplinary Jugalbandi, I mean, how does that, how does textile come into play uh, here?
0: So I think um, all my brands are somewhere a reflection of my learnings uh, in life. And all of these different aspects of culture, of both contemporary uh, culture and, you know, our historic uh, legacies have had a great impact on me in one form or the other. And I think mm, what you see uh, with Alamelu and with Adhaya, which are two completely different brands on the face of it, but which are kind of, um, you know, products of my own thinking, uh, are a reflection of these varied experiences that I've had. Uh, One of the great things about, um, you know, doing what we do in India is that, working in the craft sector really opens your eyes to different uh, dimensions of this country. So I've had the privilege of traveling to the remotest parts of the country, observing different cultures from north of India to the south of India, east, west. And really, for me, the impact of those learnings is what you generally tend to see translated in my work. So I've always been inspired by uh, architecture it's it's a true uh, it's a true passion of mine uh, you know had I not been a textile designer I might have been an architect I don't have some of the skill sets that is required unfortunately but uh, it's it's been a true passion of mine uh, and all aspects of our culture have informed my work in different yeah. ways I tend to see what I do with say, for example, Atwaya and the rest of my work, as really adding to a living cultural uh, legacy, because these are all living traditions, you know. The Kanjivaram, the Banarasi, all of these different uh, genres of textiles and crafts, they're all living traditions. And I think every innovation or every design that we uh, create as a part of these brands, is adding to the pages of that living tradition and that uh, history. I really think that one of the great privileges that we have as practitioners uh, and as designers in this country is that we are actually able to contribute to a cultural tradition that is a few thousand years old. And uh, if you really think about it, the sari is one of the oldest living garments. Yeah. Uh, in in uh, human history and every new innovation and every new design is really adding to that uh, legacy and I think that is something of a privilege that we I think many of us in the design community in India have taken very lightly but I think if you really sit back and think about it it's one of the true great privileges that we have as practitioners uh, in this country.
1: I totally agree with you, Radha Raman. thank you. I'm going to steal the word living tradition and use it very often in my writings. Um, but it's been wonderful chatting with you. It's wonderful to have this history lesson from you. It's been a privilege to hear you speak about, about your legacy and, and the kind of work that your family has done. Thank you for your time.
0: Thank you, Namrata. Uh, very happy to have been on your program. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you soon.
1: If you enjoyed the show or not, write to me on Instagram, Twitter or Clubhouse at Namruta You can catch the video podcast on the Lifeline channel on YouTube. For updates on Tell Me How You Did It, follow us at HT Smartcast. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and Clubhouse. To listen to more podcasts, log on to HDsmartcast.com or suno nai Nazaries